Well, before we look at this passage further, I invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, uh, we continue to look to you. And you have spoken. And your spirit is present. We ask that your spirit would give us open hearts to hear what you have to say. And we ask that you would help me speak faithfully and clearly. So that we, your people, might more and more become the beautiful church you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this last week I was listening uh, to a talk given by a man by the name of Brian Stevenson. Perhaps some of you are familiar with him. He is the founder of Equal Justice Initiative, an organization devoted to uh, representing those who cannot represent themselves and trying to diminish um, the, the unjust imprisonment of people. And uh, he also is made famous by both the book and the movie Just Mercy. So you might have been familiar with that. But anyway, he said something that stuck with me. He said, where hopelessness persists, injustice prevails. He says, for us to move towards a just society, it takes work, it takes effort, it takes sacrifice. And that is not something we will be able to do if we are convinced that it is futile. Where hopelessness persists, injustice prevails. And that strikes me as right. And it strikes me also as significant given our present context. Because hope kind of seems hard to find. You know, we, we talk oftentimes about kind of like there are some optimists and there's some pessimists. And as I understand the distinction, optimists are those who look at the world and are hopeful that it's going to get better. And pessimists are those who look at the world and believe it's likely to get worse. And in our context, I think it's hard to see many people who are, are speaking or thinking optimistically in this moment, right? It's Even as people are protesting, even as people are calling for change, at least when I see people talking, there is this sense, even with that, of a kind of despair, of a question of, are things ever going to get better in our country? And we can understand why there's that question, because, because what, what we are talking about, what we are struggling together as a nation is more than just one horrific incident involving George Floyd and police brutality. We're talking about issues that have gone on for centuries, issues that are deeply complex in the very system of society, issues that are deep even when it comes to the very human heart. And so it's easy to understand why there is a sense of futility, that things will not get any better. But where hopelessness persists, persists injustice prevails. But here's the thing about optimism and pessimism. They actually both share one thing in common. Optimism, of course, looks at the world and expects things to get better. Pessimism looks at the world and expects things to get worse, but both of them, what they have in common is that they're just looking at the world. And there is a different way of doing this. The Christian vision does look at the world and sees and grieves, but it also listens. It listens to the promises of God. And because we are called to walk not by sight of what we see, but by faith in what we hear and the promises that God has expressed, we have the capacity for hope in a way that the world does not. And where there is hope, there is the hope of justice. 
Now, we have been looking at Isaiah since September, and this is our very last Sunday looking at it together. And at the very heart of Isaiah is a promise. God is promising that he is going to make things right, not just for Israel, but he is going to make things right for the world. And if you were watching last week, you might remember that we saw this this vision that I described as God's plan for a movement of beauty, which I know sounds kind of cheesy, except for the fact that that's exactly what God is doing. How, how in this world of darkness, we see God shining his face, his light upon his people. And as they come to experience his love and know who he is, they are changed. They are transformed. His people are made beautiful. And as they are made beautiful, as they shine, with the very light of God himself, the world in darkness starts to take note. And people draw near. And they join. And they bring their gifts, their responsibility, their talents, their treasures. And as they come in, they make the people of God more and more beautiful, drawing more and more people in until the world is filled with the knowledge of God. This, this is the promise that we have seen in Isaiah that comes to a head in the very last week, and it continues in our passage this morning. This morning is just a continuation of chapter 61, where in 62 and 63, God, I think, recognizes just how unlikely this feels. And so he wants to reassure us that though when we look, we might not see it, we must hear what he has to say and hope. And he reassures us of the reality of these promises. So, so that is really the heart of this, and that's where I want to begin. Notice, even as we begin in chapter 61, how it begins actually with the entire Trinity. In just one verse, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord God, God the Father, is upon me, God the Son. And the Spirit has anointed to do what? Well, it says... To bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring this good news and see what it's going to accomplish in verse 3. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress, sometimes translated a crown of beauty. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are at work to make his people beautiful. Continuing on, it says, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Literally, that he might display his beauty. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are at work to make his people beautiful to show his glory. The Father sent the Son to make us beautiful. The Son came and died for us to make us beautiful. The Spirit has come and empowers us to make us beautiful that the world might know who he is. Continuing on, we see God saying in verse 8, how I will make an everlasting covenant. A covenant is a contract, a binding promise. God is saying, I will bind myself, and not just briefly, it is an eternal and everlasting covenant to do what? Their offspring will be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. The whole world will see that God has blessed them and made them. 
And in case we are missing this, notice how God speaks of things in the beginning of chapter 62. 62 verse 1. For Zion's sake, this is God speaking, I will not keep silence. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Do you hear? That's God saying, I am not going to rest. I am not going to be distracted. I'm not going to stop speaking and striving until my people are beautiful and the world sees my glory. In other words, God is saying, I am all in. I am thoroughly, passionately, deeply committed to this movement of beauty. And here's what this means. This means that you and I don't need to wonder. We don't need to wonder whether or not there will come a day when racism comes to an end. We don't need to wonder whether there will come a day where the vulnerable will be able to be confident and secure, where everyone, no matter who they are or where they come from, can look at their lives and say, I have enough. Where people, whatever their tongue, whatever their culture, whatever the color of their skin, will be able to be unified with each other with mutual love and respect and sharing of power. We do not need to wonder whether or not that day will come. We know it will. Because God is all in. And he has promised that. And he has promised that he will do this through us. Through us, his church, and, and countless other churches throughout the world. That is extraordinary. That is hard to believe, but it is what he says. Now, how does that affect you? Let me tell you, I, I, I first really came to understand, I think, what this passage was saying a little more than a year ago. And I was, I was blown away. There was a sense in my heart that kind of cried out and said, this is what I want to give my life to to being part of this work of making God's church beautiful that the world might be changed. Because here's the thing, when God says this is going to happen, it is not to make us think, okay, we can now just do nothing. God's going to do it. We can just kind of sit and watch and enjoy. No, when God is doing this, he's saying, this is my plan of salvation. And now you know that what work you might do has hope. It will not be in vain. So work that salvation out. Even as I am making you beautiful, you should pursue becoming a beautiful people so that the world might be changed. And we see that actually here in this passage. Even as God says, here is my commitment, here is what I am going to do, he also speaks of how we will be different, how we can participate in, in seeking to become a beautiful people for the good of the world. And so in our, our remaining time, not just in the sermon, but in this entire almost year-long series looking at Isaiah, I want to consider with you what this passage tells us about some of the ways that we can become, can pursue becoming a beautiful church. So three things I want to highlight from this passage. First of all, a church that is becoming beautiful is a church that is dissatisfied. That might seem like a strange place to start, but it's where our passage starts. Again, if you think about how it begins, the Spirit of the Lord came upon, is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to those who mourn. 
Now, these are not talking about vastly different people. It's all speaking of the same people in different ways. And, and specifically, it's speaking of the same people we saw a few weeks ago, the people who were lamenting. Do you remember this verse where they're saying, we have sinned and our iniquities carry us away. There was this groaning, this awareness that because of our own sin, we have destroyed ourselves. We have destroyed this world around us. And we can't do anything to fix it. That is what's being spoken of here as the people who mourn, the people who are poor in spirit. When Jesus speaks, as he begins his ministry, one of his most famous sermons is the Sermon on the Mount. It's in some ways a manifesto where he's saying, this is what my people will look like. And do you remember how it begins, those of you who have heard it before? It begins by speaking of a dissatisfied people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is saying, I have come. My people are people who in this world are dissatisfied. Now, we sometimes, I think, misunderstand this. It's common to think that, that Christianity involves being content with the way things are. And I want to suggest to you that that actually isn't Christianity. That's Stoicism. To be a Christian means that you and I have the privilege of security in Christ and a hope that we know is real. And so we do not need to be afraid. But as we look at this world, we must not be satisfied. Because if we are called to reflect the beauty of God, he is not satisfied. Remember what he said, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. I will not be quiet until her righteousness shines forth. And in fact, he even specifically says that we shouldn't be satisfied. If you, if you were to look at verse 6, where he speaks to the leaders on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in earth. It is a call to be dissatisfied as long as there is evil, as long as there is injustice. One of the things I think that has been exposed for us in these last few weeks of tumult is this very theme, is how a certain kind of complacency actually is a kind of cruelty. What does it say if we can look at the world and look around us and be generally okay with how things are because things are fine for us? Because our employment is relatively secure. Because we do not experience deep injustice. Because we are not judged by and large for what we look like. What does it say if we are okay with that, even though we know people just miles away from us are experiencing something drastically different? Because we know, we know that God is not okay with this. God has said he looks and sees the injustice of this world, and he is appalled. He is angry, Scripture says. And so also are we called to be. A church becoming beautiful is a church that that is not satisfied as long as there is evil in this world. Now, I think what that means, 
is I've been reflecting, like, what does that mean for us? It means, to begin with, that you and I need to listen. Because if there's one thing that's becoming more and more clear to me is that I don't fully understand. I, I don't understand what it is like to experience racism. That's probably an obvious statement, but what I'm realizing more and more. About a decade ago, I worked at a fairly affluent church in Dallas, and a friend of mine who was working there alongside, around the same time, he spoke after how sometimes he would go to these fancy parties held by some of the affluent members of the church. And he was the only person of color pretty much in the entire large party. And he said, and sometimes people would throw their keys to me thinking I was the valet. Or sometimes they would give me their trash because they thought I was the help. And, and, and what he was being told was that you don't really kind of belong here. I don't know what that's like. Many of you know I have three boys who are growing into adulthood. I don't know what it's like to have to tell them that as they get older, even no matter how gentle or kind they are, they will be perceived as a threat. I don't know what it's like to be constantly sensing that just my appearance makes me seem suspicious. I don't know. And my guess is for many of you, neither do you. And for us to grow into the kind of dissatisfaction that we are called to, we need to listen. But we need to do more than listen. Again, speaking of this man, Brian Stevens, in his talk, he points out that we need to actually become proximate. For us to actually experience the dissatisfaction we are called to, we need to draw near to where the problem is most pronounced. Some of you might remember Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember how it goes. There's this man who is beaten, who is robbed, who's left on the side of the streets. And it says that when the priest comes and he sees the man beaten, he goes to the other side and he walks around. And the Levite, when he sees the man, he goes to the other side and walks around. But the Samaritan, he looks and he draws near. I think in Chicago, the very way that our suburbs are designed, we get to stay away. We are removed. And as long as we're removed, we will never have the dissatisfaction we are called to. One question that I am asking, and that maybe I'm calling you to ask, is how can we draw near? to where there is injustice, to where there are problems. But the dissatisfaction we're called to, I suggest, also means we don't just look around us and draw near. It means looking inside of us and being honest and asking ourselves, where is there apathy where there should be compassion? Where is there pride where we treat what we have earned as just something that we deserve and therefore those who didn't earn it, that's their fault as well? Where is the racism? A church becoming beautiful is a church that is dissatisfied. Secondly, in our passage, we see a church becoming beautiful is a church that rebuilds. Verse 4, you notice, as, as the Spirit comes and as he preaches good news, notice what happens as a result. It says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So these ruins, these devastations, if you remember, if you've been with us studying Isaiah, as, as God's people experience the discipline of God, their cities become overrun by other nations. These cities stand as reminders, as symbols of their failure. The, the ruins are the consequences of sin. They are the chaos that is brought about. And God says, as I preach this good news, as I shine my love upon you, as I make you beautiful, you will rebuild. 
Now, what I've been struck by as I've been looking at this language of rebuilding is he's not primarily talking actually about bricks and mortar when he's talking about rebuilding the consequences of your failure. In fact, in chapter 58, it very explicitly tells us what rebuilding looks like. When God says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the ruins that I'm especially talking about, the things that are the, the destructive consequences of sin are more than just bricks and mortar. They are the broken relationships. They are the injustice that now pervades society. And as I shine my beauty upon you, I will enable you to start undoing that, to start being the one who stands in the breach and repairs and brings justice where there was once injustice. A beautiful, a church becoming beautiful is a church that rebuilds, that stands in the breach. We have been, for the last few weeks, looking at a breach in this nation. That's stating something obvious, something that goes deep and is profound in its division in terms of racism. It's built on generations of horrific sin with slavery and lynchings and Jim Crow laws and redlining. And this is not something that a quick, a quick fix will change. It involves deep processes of truth and reconciliation. And what I am suggesting is that God says the church is where this is supposed to take place. Not, not just in terms of us joining in protest, although that is good, but in terms of truly seeking to draw near, to speak truth, to own where there needs to be repentance, to pursue the work of reconciliation. We are the place in, whom, in which God wants to see this happen because there is a power that you and I have a unity that we have between us, the brothers and sisters of whatever nation, that the world does not know. We are called to pursue standing in the breach and bring reconciliation with our division. Another breach that we see in our nation where there is a brokenness has to do with the vast gap between the wealth and the poor. There are areas in this country, and I'm, we could be talking about Southside Chicago, or we could be talking about the rural areas of West Virginia, but there are areas in our country where if you were born into this area, your likelihood of escaping poverty is incredibly low. Meanwhile, there are areas like ours that if you were born into it, your likelihood of doing well is incredibly high. We are a community of Africans. And, and let me be clear, there is, it is, scripture is clear that there is not a sin, it is not sinful to be wealthy. Wealth is not a sin, but it is a responsibility. Scripture says that any time we have been entrusted with gifts, whether that is talent, whether that is power, whether that is possession, those gifts we have been given are given so that we can serve the world around us. 
and especially those who have been given much, have been given the responsibility to care for those who are less. This is not just a matter of us being called to be charitable and us being kind. This is actually a matter of, of duty, of justice, of responsibility. And the church, as it is seeking to become a beautiful church, is called to be the ones who are taking the initiative. How can we use our resources? How can we see what God has given us as a means by which we can bless those who most need it? A church that's becoming beautiful is a church that rebuilds. Now, you might notice that so far I've been really kind of vague in terms of details about what that looks like. How do we seek to breach, to, to, to stand in the breach of racism? How do we seek to stand in the breach of, of wealth disparity? The reason I've been really vague is because, honestly, that's not where my expertise is. I mean, the stuff that we're talking about involves complex sociological phenomena. Seeking justice involves an understanding of the law. Seeking to kind of bring people out of poverty involving understanding of, of education, mental health, and medical health. And I don't know these things very well. But you do. God has given us collectively the gifts that we need to do this work. And he calls us to talk together, to think together, to work towards rebuilding together. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I know it's going to be costly. Because you cannot carry the weight of someone else's burden without feeling it on your shoulders. But I also know it's not in vain. Because God has promised that it is. A church that is becoming beautiful is a church that rebuilds. Finally, thirdly, and just very briefly, a church that is becoming beautiful is a church that exalts in God. We see that really throughout this passage, but perhaps especially we see that in verse 10 of chapter 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Now the word exult is just simply kind of joy with focus, right? It is rejoicing as it focuses on who God is. And we're, we're told here that this is what a church becoming beautiful is. It's complicated, right? Because on one hand, we are dissatisfied as we look at this world, and yet we rejoice as we look at our God and we see his beauty and we come to understand his love for us. The Psalms speak of how we are supposed to taste and see that the Lord is good. We are called to delight ourselves in the Lord. We have a responsibility to be happy in God. And, and we need to do this because the world needs us to do this. One of my favorite writers, a name of Leslie Newbegin, said, the thing that distinguishes the church from the rest of the world, perhaps more than anything else, is that it is a people of praise. We are a people who have a joy in something that stands completely outside of us, in one who is greater than us. We are filled with awe, and that joy and that awe is beautiful. You know, we, we sometimes sing the song, This Little Light of Mine, and I think today it's kind of almost been co-opted into this idea of just kind of individualism, that when I'm letting it shine, I'm just being who I am. That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when Jesus says, you're the light of the world. And the light that is called to shine is not just us being us. It is us as we rejoice in God, showing God to 
Because as important as it is to be dissatisfied and to empathize, as important as it is to work and rebuild, that is not enough. In a world that is in darkness, what they most need to see is light. And that light is found in God. That light is found in Christ Jesus. And Jesus has chosen, for reasons we will never fully understand, to dwell among us. A church that is becoming beautiful is a church that exalts in God. You know, one of the things that really sets apart this season from, say, like 1968, which I'm comparing that to now, is that we are in the age of iPhones, right? So there's all sorts of photography and videos that are being taken, and probably many of you have seen images upon images, many of which are horrific, of whether we're talking about police brutality or whether we're talking about rioting and violence. It's overwhelming, but they're not just negative images. There are some moments that you see that, that are encouraging and beautiful, and there's one particular that I'm reminded of here. In, in Nashville, there is this moment where you have the protesters and you have the police, and there's this moment where one of the protesters actually starts speaking with one of the policemen. And they discover as they're talking that what they have in common is that they are both followers of Christ. And after some conversation, they decide to pray together. And there's this image of them embracing with their heads bowed as equals, black and white, police officer and protester, united on the same level as sinners who are loved by God, united in their faith in Christ. And I want to suggest to you that that is what this is about. That is a picture of what God is doing and will continue to do. And he will not rest until the whole world is like this. And he calls you and me not to rest either, but to pray and to long for and to pursue that more and more we would be a people that are beautiful in a way that changes the world around us. So I invite you just to take a moment even right now as we respond to God's word, to respond in prayer, maybe even in confession where we recognize our own failings, and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. Can you please join with me in a moment of silence? Father, this vision is, is almost impossible for us to believe. It seems so hard for us to imagine that these things could be true. We, we look at this world and it is easy for us to despair. And yet your promises are real and they are certain. So Father, we acknowledge before you our own sin, our own apathy. And we ask where there is racism where there is pride, where there is a self-centeredness, that you would change us. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us creativity, that you would give us the means by which we might more and more be this people you have called us to be, so that the world might know just how beautiful you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.
hear the good news of the gospel, the words that Jesus preached as he begins his ministry from quoting Isaiah, uh, Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters, take heart, for in Christ we are God's liberated and forgiven people. And forgiven people. And forgiven people.